Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. As usual, we've got a great show for you guys. Phil, who's on today? Today we have Beth Woods, and she is the executive director of Hope's Promise. And some of you may remember that name, Hope's Promise, from uh, an episode a few episodes ago. We had Adrienne Collins on. She's an amazing uh, woman who uh, just had an amazing story. And I'm, I'm not even going to say more about it because you need to go back and listen to it if you haven't already. And so Beth today gives us a little bit more context of what Hope's Promise is doing in a lot of different areas all around the world. So I'm not going to give too much more about Beth because she's going to tell her story herself. So here we go with Beth Woods. Well, hey, Beth, it is so great to have you here on the Think Orphan podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So, Beth, you know, you and I have have not had the opportunity to, to really get to know each other. So I'm excited to learn right alongside our audience here about you, about Hope's Promise, about the great work you guys are doing. I know our mutual friend, Diane Elliott, who works with uh, Hope's Promise, has introduced the two of us. And so I'd, I'd love for you to just be able to share a little bit with our audience and with me, your story and how you got um, to be where you are with Hope's Promise. Absolutely. Well, I think um, my story kind of goes back to my childhood. Um, My dad, when I was 13 years old, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and was sick for about a year and um, required a lot of care and ended up in hospice and in the hospital. And I think that's really what led me into the field of social work, that early learning experience about helping others. And I always knew, even as a kid, that I wanted to help children and families when I grew up. Um, I was lucky enough to marry my college sweetheart um, just after graduating from college. And three years into our marriage, we got pregnant with our first baby. Um, Unfortunately, however, um, I went into preterm labor while I was on a flight. Mm. And by the time we landed and I got to a hospital, my labor had progressed too far. And my baby was born a little bit early um, at 26 weeks. And she was just too small and she only lived about a day. Mm. Um, And so we we experienced that early loss of our first child in our marriage and uh, spent a lot of time talking with doctors and they advised us that we could get pregnant again and there wouldn't be any um, risk factors. And so about a year later, we got pregnant again. And this time I was able to carry the baby to term. But when I was 40 weeks pregnant, I felt the baby stop moving and we went into the doctors and um, they said that there was not a heartbeat. And so I had my second child was still born at term. And so in that delivery, um, I started um, hemorrhaging and ended up um, coming very close to losing my life. The doctors called my husband in and said I wasn't going to live through the night and to call our parents and our parents flew in. Um, somehow, miraculously, I survived, and uh, but I was in ICU for quite a while. And I do remember after waking up a couple days later and my mom was by my bedside, she said, Beth, God has a plan for you. Mm. And I just at that time could not wrap my brain around the fact that this would be any kind of plan that God would have for my life. Right. Um, but now, almost 30 years later, 25 years later, looking back, I can see clearly that he had a plan for my life. And um, my husband and I went on to pursue domestic infant adoption um, rather than choose to, to get pregnant again. We adopted our first son through domestic infant adoption, met his birth mom while she was pregnant and were able to be there at the hospital when he was born. 
Um, and then a few years later, we decided to become foster parents. And so we fostered many children over the years um, and ended up adopting our second and third boys through foster care adoption, their biological brothers that were placed with us. And so we've built our family through adoption. We have three amazing boys that are now 21, 17, and almost 16. Um, at the time that we adopted our first son, I was a child protective worker for Adams County Department of Human Services. Had no, didn't even have adoption on my radar um, and had never worked in the adoption field. But after my kids got a little bigger and my husband and I stopped being foster parents and I started to look to going back to work as a social worker, I came across Hope's Promise and um, just realized that this is exactly where I need to be and started providing pregnancy counseling or options counseling to women in crisis pregnancy and doing adoptive family home studies. And I did that casework for about six years. And then I took over as director of adoptions, overseeing the adoption program for about five years. And then when our founder retired almost four years ago, I took over as executive director. And I just feel so blessed to be working here at Hope's Promise where we do adoption and orphan care. And I look back now on that time that my mom said she had a plan for me. And I realized how much everything in my life has really just led up to this. Mm. You know, I've been a child who lost a parent a parent who lost a child, uh, an adoptive parent, a foster parent, all of those things have been my life experience. Now to be able to serve others in, in adoptive and in orphan care journeys, it just feels exactly where I need to be. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's quite a story. And, and, you know, I, I agree. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing to see how God works. We talk with people about that all the time. And, through tragedy, through really difficult times, things that you never wanted to go through, but now you're able to help other people going through that in a way that I can't and other people can't who haven't actually lived that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that you are doing what you're doing and you're able to help people, um, and, uh, work with people and walk alongside people and, and you yourself are able to, to do all these things as well with your husband and with your, with your children. And it's just, it's so encouraging to me to hear that story. So thanks for sharing that. And, and, uh, you know, let's, let's go now into really what Hope's Promise is doing, especially in the context of, um, really as most people listening know, and some, some of you, if you're new to the, new to this area and you just happen to stumble upon this, this, uh, this podcast, really the landscape of adoption and foster care over the last, you know, few years, especially is, is changing. And it, and it's really, um, it's taking on um, new areas and new, new focus, um, in different countries and, uh, and really here in the U S as well. But can you speak to that and give your thoughts on why orphan care appears to be heading in? I don't know if it's a new direction, but in, in this direction, uh, more towards, you know, the, really the prevention side and, um, and adoptions and foster care really not being necessarily the, the primary focus of the church and other, other organizations. Absolutely. Yeah, there has been a significant amount of um, changing landscape in the world of adoption and orphan care. And I think a big piece of it is the um, situation that's going on currently with international adoption. So international adoption really peaked in 2004 when over 22,000 kids came home to the U.S. through international adoption. And it has steadily declined over the years since mostly um, due to the implementation of the Hague but there's a lot of other reasons as well. Um, and last year in 2016, there was only 5,400 children who came home through international adoption. So it is 
decreasing significantly at a significant rate. Um, there's just a lot more uh, red tape. There's a lot more uh, laws changing in the U.S., laws changing in the foreign countries, uh, more difficulty providing the documentation needed, more oversight, changes in government. So we know that adoption, international adoption, is getting less and less available, which, of course, we know there's millions of children orphaned worldwide. And if international adoption um, doesn't change directions, if the trend doesn't change directions, there's not a lot of options for these kids in these countries because many of these countries don't have domestic um, adoption programs. We've also seen a real shift in our foster care adoption. Um, for many years in our adoption or in our foster care system, there was uh, the ability to apply to be long-term foster parents or what they called foster to adopt parents. And foster to adopt parents would come into the um, system wanting to adopt a child through the foster care system. Um, and it's been a national trend, I would say, over the past six or eight years to really move away from that foster adopt um, system. What they were finding is that when children are placed out of home, there's a federal mandate that reunification has to be the goal. So when the county steps in and takes protective custody of kids, they court order a treatment plan, and the, the primary goal needs to be to get those children back with their biological parents. And what they were finding is for the children that were placed with foster adopt families, that the foster adopt parents were less invested um, in coming alongside the biological family to help them be successful at reunification. And so they made a decision to really phase out foster adopt and just require people who wanted to adopt through the foster care system to just be foster parents. And the foster parent's job is to come alongside the biological parents, um, really enable them and empower them to be successful in their treatment plan so reunification can happen. Still, if reunification doesn't happen, if the, the parents aren't successful at a treatment plan, then the foster parents are um, available. If they're available to adopt the child, they're the first choice for an adoptive placement for that child. But what that means for families who just want to adopt is that um, it's not as desirable of a process because it means that children have to come and go and come and go before one might stay. Mm -hmm. um, so the options for adoption for children just continue to decrease. Um, domestic infant adoption has always been um, something that has, um, we've had lots and lots of domestic adoptions happening in the United States over the year, years. But one of the things that we're seeing now is that birth rates are at an all-time low. And so because birth rates are at an all-time low, that means there's less women who have an unintended pregnancy who are choosing to place their children for adoption. So just 18 years ago, in 1990, the birth rate was 16.7 per 1,000 of the population in the U.S. And last year in 2016, it was just 12 per 1,000. And so those numbers are impacting domestic infant adoption. So in general, adoption options are really just um, kind of a moving target and it's a changing landscape, one that looks different every year. Yeah, definitely. And the implications are obviously, you know, are big, you know, with UNICEF coming in, particularly in the international adoption area, you talk about the Hague Convention, these different things that talk about every child has a right to a family, which we all would agree with. Um, but 
how, what does that family look like? Cause UNICEF also will say, you know, international adoption is not really there. They don't, they're not big fans of international adoption. That's right. And so, um, you know, for, you know, reasons that in theory, in a vacuum makes sense. You would love to keep a, a child in their own culture. You would love to keep them in their biological family, ideally, or in a family in that culture. But as you said, there are a lot of these countries, domestic adoption either isn't practiced, um, or some countries it's just not, it's not done. Um, and so, uh, what, what is your position on that is, is, you know, what do we feel about how we should move forward in the context of this, you know, like we talked about in family preservation, because I know you guys do family preservation and you're big fans of family preservation to the extent it's, it's healthy and right, as well as helping birth mothers, you know, in their, you know, when they're, when they're in a crisis uh, or uncertain about what to do. So how does Mm -hmm. all that fit together when we're talking about, and I just want to focus right now on the international side. Um, How does all that fit together when we're talking about how do we take care of these children who need a family, um, but maybe the the system is is really pushing them towards a family reunification that may not be able to happen. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Are you following that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why I just love and I'm so passionate about the work that we do at Hope's Promise because we have a real unique model of care in our orphan care program internationally. Um, most of the time, a lot of the time, um, there's two options for orphan children in developing countries. Um, they can either be adopted through international adoption or they can be placed in institutional settings like orphanages. Um, but our program is set up very, very different. It is based on that family preservation that children are best served when they grow up with connections to their biological family, or at least with their um, culture and their country and their community and their roots. And so in our orphan care program, we have programs in Vietnam, Zimbabwe, Nepal, and Kenya. Um, we do things a little differently. With Rather than placing children in institutional settings like orphanages, we have, um, where we, we have a system where we recruit and train and equip indigenous couples, usually a pastor and a pastor's wife, who have a heart for orphans. So a pastor and his wife who just live in the village and who have a heart for orphans um, will we'll, um, hire them, train them, support them in a process of raising orphan children in their home. And so they might commit to raising two or three or four um, orphan children and will place those children in their home. And we support that through a child sponsorship program. Um, the other thing that we do is if there is a child that's with a biological relative, like a grandmother, an auntie, or uh, a single parent who is just really struggling to care for that child and is considering um, placing the child in an orphanage, oftentimes the reason is because they can't afford education, tuition, and they feel like if they send their child to the orphanage, they'll have opportunities they wouldn't have if they stayed with them and didn't get an education. And so we also do educational scholarships to enable children to stay with biological families in these countries. Um, We know that God's plan is for children to grow up in families. Um, We learned that in the United States a long time ago that institutional settings really don't work for kids. And we moved away from the orphanage system back in the the 40s and 50s. and, And that's when we transitioned to that foster care group home model. And that I think is just something that, um, we haven't seen in the orphan care world before, but certainly is something that is evolving as we realize the implications for the number of kids um, that remained orphan that might never be adopted through international adoption. 
Yeah, and I love that. That's what we talk about all the, you know, a lot with, you know, the work we do with Providence, the work, you know, we're trying to encourage through Think Orphan is we need to get creative, you know. I know there's the organizations like World Orphans out there, what you guys are doing with Horse Pope's Promise, we're doing with Providence, and just really what we're seeing as far as we need to figure out ways for those kids who otherwise would fall through the cracks if there isn't adoption available for whatever reason, if there That's isn't right. foster care in those countries. There's going to be thousands, sometimes millions of children in some of these countries that really have nowhere to go. And that's the question that we, we have to wrestle with more and more. And I love to hear what you guys are doing. I love reading about it and just hearing you talk about it a little bit there. Um, so how does, you know, and and I want to go, uh, now to, um, and, and I just want to encourage everyone out there, you know, there's so much more to each of these things. And obviously on this show, we only have a little bit of time to get into each of them, but I want to make sure people hear from you as far as the work that you're doing with birth mothers and the encouragement and counseling that you guys have for birth mothers, um, and what that looks like. And I know obviously that's something that's, that's close to you and your heart, given you know, what you talked about in your story. So can you share with us about that? Yeah. So a big piece of our um, domestic adoption program is the pregnancy counseling that we provide um, throughout the state of Colorado. Um, So women and men who experience an unintended pregnancy oftentimes don't know what choices they have. They don't know what resources are in the community. They don't know how to even begin to solve the problem they're they're faced with. And so we provide what we call options counseling. That's a free service to anyone that contacts us. They're experiencing an unintended pregnancy. We'll send a caseworker out to meet with them and provide them with options counseling. And what we do is we really help them take a look at a parenting plan because we do believe that kids are best served if they can stay with their biological family. So we take a look, what would it take for this child to, to, for you to be able to parent this child? Um, We'll look at their educational goals, their career goals, their financial situation, all of the pieces and try to help them develop a parenting plan that they might be successful at. We also take them through a process of examining whether there's anybody in their extended family who might consider raising the child. Um, And then if they feel like a parenting plan is not going to work for them, there's nobody in the family that might be able to parent their child, then we make provide them with relinquishment counseling, which is required in the state of Colorado, making sure that they understand their legal options. They understand the ramifications, the long-term ramifications, the grief and loss that comes with relinquishing a child for adoption. We help them understand that adoption has changed drastically from where it was 50 years ago. And primarily, all most adoptions nowadays are, are practiced as open adoption. And so examining what kind of relationship they'd like to have ongoing with the child in the family and support them through an adoption plan. So we might counsel 100, 125 expectant parents a year, and maybe only 20, 25 of those um, clients will choose to place their child for adoption. Um, but we, a big piece of our ministry is ministering to these men and women that are experiencing that unattended pregnancy and just empowering them to choose life in one way or the other. Yeah, that's, that's so encouraging. And, and it's just, it's great to hear that, you know, even like you said, even if it was one couple that chose to, to do that, that they might not have otherwise, that's all worth it. Right. You know, and, that's right. And that's to hear 2025, and hopefully that increases more and more over the years. And, and, you know, and that's something that, um, I'd love for you to just share, you know, if you have, 
um, a story we on w- either one of those, whether it's you know international uh, and the work that you're doing, kind of on the on the family preservation and the children that are you know fall, otherwise falling between the cracks, or on the birth mother. I'd just really would like you to be able to show the story to kind of put some flesh onto this, so that people can understand like this is really happening every day. Do you have a story you can share with us um, that will do that? Absolutely. I think, you know, the reality is that, um, especially for our children that we place internationally in these um, foreign countries, that oftentimes where we find them is in the slums, living on the streets, eating out of the garbage heaps, that sort of thing. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Vietnam um, and visit. We have four family homes there and visit our homes there. And we have one little boy, Ing Wan, who is placed with one of our families. Um, and his story was that he, he was being raised by his mother and his father. And his mother fell down the mountainside while she was um, working and she passed away. And so his father was raising him and his father got sick um, and there was no access to medical treatment. And so he died of an illness. And so Ingwan was by himself and his aunt took him in, but she had a number of children herself and she couldn't afford to feed them all and send them all to school. And so he ended up with his grandmother, but his grandmother was very, very elderly um, and didn't have the capacity to feed him or care for him. And so they heard about the program with Hope's Promise and they reached out to our country coordinator, Tom, and said, we can't care for this child. We love him dearly, but we can't afford to feed him. We can't afford to clothe him. We can't afford to send him to school. And we hear that you have Christian families that will care for him. And so we ended up placing him with one of our families. And when I had the opportunity to go over to Vietnam in 2015, I believe it was, we had a chance to go out and visit the village that that Ingwan was from. And so we, ha- we, were, we had a driver who took us down the paved road, and then we went on a dirt road, and then we parked our van, and we started walking down this dirt path in the jungle. And we get to this village with houses on stilts, very, very, very poor community, very poor community. Um, and this is where Ingwan's grandmother lived. And she invited us into her very humble home and served us some coffee. And we had to have two translators, one to translate from English to Vietnamese and another to translate from Vietnamese to the tribal language. Um, and as we sat and had coffee with his grandmother, she said, I just want to let you know, I pray for you and I pray for Hope's Promise every day. Mm. And you saved our, my grandson's life and I will never be able to repay you for that. And I, I just was blown away about, by the... Um, reality that there's this this woman who lives on the other side of the world in the middle of nowhere who's praying for the work that we're doing mm. and how impactful that was in her life and it just it it just gives me the energy and the um, stamina I think that I need to continue doing the work that we're doing to know we can't change everything I mean the problem is huge our orphan crisis is huge mm-hmm. and I can't solve that big problem but if I can change one child's life it's all worth it yeah no, absolutely and I think that if everyone took that um, and really took that to heart uh, that would definitely bring a ton of change to this world and bring a lot of shalom to these communities that absolutely need it um, on that note you know I'd love for you to share just a few ways you know our audience can get involved we all know um, now not everyone's doing it but we all know about you know the fact that we can all give financially there's ways people can sponsor children they can go to your website we'll have that on the website but I'd, I'd love for you to speak um, you know they say the website on the show notes for this show we'll have all the links 
next for Hope's Promise and the different possible ways to get involved with what they're doing financially. Um, but I'd also like for you to speak to our audience. For those people, again, who may just be looking for ways, because these, these things seem so big, you know, counseling a birth mom. Like most people would have no clue where to even go and probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, but um, loving them, yes, but not counseling them necessarily going overseas, working in Nepal, you know, these things are like, okay, that's just way beyond, but I know there's some things people can do right where they are, wherever they are in the world right now, um, to be able to love the children and to be able to do the, you know, help with this work. Can you just share a few of those ways with our audience? Yes, absolutely. And I do think that is, um, where people get stuck a lot of times is that they, they hear the call. They, they know that they're supposed to be caring for the widowed and the orphans, but sometimes the problem just seems so huge. Um, we're not all called to adopt. It's not right for every family. And so how do we then make an impact? And I think a first and foremost is prayer. Um, if, if everybody who has a heart for this, this uh, crisis um, could focus their prayer on serving um, children through orphan care, uh, prayer is limitless. And with everybody coming alongside and praying for these children that are in need and for the families who maybe are choosing to bring these orphan children into their home, um, God's power is not limited by our mind's capacity to understand. If we can just pray together, I think that's our very first step. Um, I also think that there's lots of ways that you can support adoptive and foster families in your community. So you might not be called to foster or adopt, um, but there's ways that you can come alongside them, um, maybe creating ministries within your church community to support fostering adoptive families. Um, there's an opportunity to become respite families for those um, families that are providing foster care. Oftentimes they might need um, to, to have somebody care for their child while they're out of town or while they're in the hospital, that sort of thing. And so respite care is providing temporary care to foster kids without that long-term commitment of being foster parents. There's an amazing program here in Colorado called Safe Families that is not through foster care. It's not traditional respite care, but it's a ministry that is um, has a focus of preventing out-of-home placement, preventing kids from going into foster care. So it's temporary assistance to families in crisis. So, for example, if there's a single mom and she's going to the hospital for surgery and she has no one to care for her children, typically what would happen is those children will be placed into foster care. But if she, through the connections with safe family, other families can step up and provide the care that she needs while she's in the hospital um, without the intervention of the county. Um, and, of course, there's tons of opportunities to volunteer um, for orphan care ministries, both locally and internationally. Um, most of the time it is um, assistance with, um, it's, it's not like, often, oftentimes you think about like a clothing drive or a shoe drive, and you can't really do that with international orphan care because it's so costly to get things mm -hmm. overseas. Um, but it's more project based. Maybe it's writing letters to children. Maybe it's um, creating um, um, events that raise funds to care for these children. So there's opportunities to volunteer. And then I know with our organization, I know with other organizations as well, there's opportunities to participate in mission trips. And here at Hope's Promise, we call them connection team trips because it's about relationship building and encouragement um, where we as a team go over and visit the families that we serve 
pray with them and encourage them and support them in their learning and their growth. And so there's opportunities, I think, through lots of organizations to participate in mission trips. I feel like I could go on and yeah, on. <laughs> no, there's so many different ways. I think that's a great, a great uh, start. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I love to hear there is the relationship building. And it's something that we um, have had several people on the show talk about missions trips. And, and uh, you know, the one thing that is consistently talked about is we need to be building relationships, have mutual um, understanding, respect, you know, accountability, that That's we can right. encourage each other and not come in as the saviors, not come in and doing a million things thinking we're going to save everyone's lives. And exactly. and that is, you know, we, we recently had Brian Fickard on who wrote When Helping Hurts, and that, right. that book is so fantastic as far as just really changing the understanding of who we are, who everyone is, and that we're all broken, but we can come in and encourage each other. And it does, it does help us to understand, um, ourselves better to understand the world, I think. Um, so there's so many different great things that potentially can come out of mission trips. You know, obviously there's a lot of negative side too, but I think that we can focus on the, the potential good and do that well. I think that we can hopefully redeem the the process and what we're doing, um, to the extent it's been broken. Um, I want to, this is a question I ask a lot of our guests. I haven't asked everyone, but, um, I want to hear from you just as a leader, as someone working domestically and internationally. Um, and, uh, knowing we have people all around the world listening to this, um, what do you believe is one of the biggest issues that we're facing, uh, in orphan care today and how can we address it? You know, I think that, um, one of the biggest issues that we're facing in orphan care is just the lack of understanding and the lack of advocacy. I think sometimes um, it's easy to pretend like a problem doesn't exist if you don't know about it. Um, and so here in the United States, we live such a privileged lifestyle and um, we just have opportunities that we take for granted that I know for me personally, before I started working in the field of adoption and orphan care, I didn't understand the magnitude of the crisis. I didn't understand the, the depths of poverty that existed in the world. And it wasn't until I stood there face to face with it in these developing countries that I realized how significant a problem it is. And I think um, when you put a face um, and a name to the orphan crisis, it becomes real. And there's no, um, there's no way to walk away from it. And so I think we, um, one of the problems that we have is that we don't have enough advocacy happening here in the United States. We don't have enough exposure to the problems. I think we need to work to educate our communities, educate our country about the ways, the opportunities that we have to impact this crisis. Because like you said before, it's such a big issue. Sometimes people feel like they can't make a difference. And so I think with exposure, with education and with advocacy, I think we would have a lot more people getting on board. And I think in this day and age with uh, where we're all connected digitally and social media, it's happening more and more, definitely more than it ever used to. Mm -hmm. um, but I just think one of the problems is there's not enough of a spotlight on the crisis. No, that's great. That's so true that in order to bring something out of the darkness and in order to bring something, you need to expose it. You need to expose light on it. And, and I think that hopefully things like this podcast, things like other podcasts out there, different articles, different churches really focusing on these things, Orphan Sunday to bring, you know, focus to things. Hopefully these things are starting to get into churches, get into the, 
the societies that we're working in. Um, but really at the end of the day, as we've talked about, um, on the show a lot is it needs to get in the DNA of churches. It really needs to get as part of what people do to know this is the heart of God and what that looks like. And, you know, and I came from completely on the outside of, of all this stuff. And so I know what it was like to not think about it at all. Mm -hmm. And to now that, now that I have been doing it full time and have been really focused, it's like, it's everywhere now. Now you can't, Right. not see it. It's literally in everything and touches and is touched by everything that we do. So hopefully we can continue this charge and, and keep getting, getting out there with people so that people can understand this deeper. And I, I could love that answer. Um, so the last two questions we do ask all of our guests and two of my favorite questions, um, that I ask, get to ask you and other people is what have you read, watched, or listened to recently that has impacted your understanding of how we can love orphaned and at-risk children with excellence? You know, one of the most impactful things that I've seen lately is the, um, Molly movie. Did you see that movie? You know, I haven't yet. I, it's one that um, I, I absolutely wanted to, and I just wasn't able to, but yeah. It is powerful. And it tells the story of Molly, who he was abandoned as a child in the bush in Africa and made his way into Nairobi, into the city. And just just based on his resilience, I'm sure, um, made himself a millionaire. I mean, he was one of the wealthiest met businessmen in the community. And he heard um, he had had. Um, several children, four or five, I can't remember exactly how many, and they were adolescent age. Um, but he heard a very clear call from God that he needed to stop working to amass his wealth and start serving those orphan and abandoned children, the street children that he used to be. And so he gave up all his business and devoted all his um, savings, all his wealth, to serving the street children in Africa and has served several thousand children over the years. Mm. Uh, it was just a really, really powerful movie um, to see how someone could um, really just sacrifice everything to serve the Lord and in, in, in the calling that he heard. Um, so that really was the most powerful thing that I, I think I've read or seen lately. Yeah, no, that that's a reminder to me and hopefully to others out there who haven't seen it that I definitely need to need to to see that movie. Um, it had a really short run in the theaters, which is why it I think did. I missed it. And, and it just that week was crazy as usual in my home. Yeah. But um, the last question, what person has most impacted your understanding of how we can love orphaned and at-risk children with excellence? Oh, wow. Um, besides Jesus? Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, Gosh, that's a tough question because I feel like there's so there's so many people who have influenced my mm -hmm. life, um, and I think I, I would almost have to say a collective answer. That's fine. Of the of, a, of the house parents that we have, that's what we call our mm -hmm. our, our parents and our. Uh, family homes internationally. Um, when I took over as executive director, it was my first opportunity to travel to all these countries and meet these families um, and to see the sacrifices these parents have have made. I mean, these are people who live in poor communities, poor villages. They, they don't have much um, themselves and that they would open their children and, or open their homes and love these children as their own um, and share whatever they have um, with you know, an open heart and just a hundred percent investment in these kids and their future. Just, it was powerful to me because I mm -hmm. think 
you know, my husband and I were foster parents, but we had to do a lot of thinking and we had to look at our budget and could we afford for me not to work? And were we going to be able to pay the grocery bill? And, you know, there was just a lot of factors. And um, I just was so amazed at just the unconditional love these parents had for these children they brought into their home and the sacrifices that they were making to them. Just reminded me again that, um, you know, it just... It, it, it just is our responsibility. It's something we have to do. Um, and it has to be, um, it has to be unconditional. There can't be conditions on it. And so I think that's probably the greatest impact that I've had. Yeah, no, not surprising. Not surprising. So thank you so much, Beth. Thank you for the wisdom you're able to share today and for what you're doing uh, in and through Hope's Promise. You're welcome. I'm so glad I could share with you. Well, thanks again, Beth, for uh, just sharing all that you're doing with Hope's Promise and being very vulnerable, open, transparent with your story, your life. And, you know, that's something that is, is never, never ceases to amaze me, just the different stories that we have, the different backgrounds that we have. And I don't know if it's if disproportionate given the work we do, Karen, but uh, it seems like we're hearing story after story of people who are just brokenness and just difficult pasts that are now, you know, they're able to use that for God's glory and, and to help so many other people around the world. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's, it's everywhere. And, you know, the church that I attend here in Louisville, we're actually working through Galatians and it's incredibly in, in my face in that arena too, of just knowing everything that Paul went through and, and how God has used him and how God used him um, and everything that he experienced and um, how he used him for his glory. And I was very um, impressed. I told Phil, <laughs> I told you a minute ago, like I almost literally ugly cried hearing her story because of just the grief and the sadness and um, and how in that God has used her her story and her vision to, to help families, uh, not only across... America, but really across the world. Um, one of the things that stood out for me related to, um, you know, hope's promise. One of the things that really stood out was when they were talking about, um, counseling for individuals who have an unexpected pregnancy. And I loved it that they they include men, um, that there's an emphasis, not only on providing that education related to options to women who have an unexpected pregnancy, but for men also, I think that's so relevant, um, as a family is deciding, hopefully, um, the best way to handle an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah, definitely. You know, and as we said before the interview, Adrian Collins is a real life example of, you know, someone hopes promise has, has helped and worked with and worked and now she's able to help others as well. Um, which is just so encouraging to, to hear her story and to hear Beth now again, just speaking of the, the ways they actually do that practically. So, so what, what else kind of stuck out to you in, in, in her interview? Well, Phil, I think that she did a really good job of giving some practical ways that individuals can get connected with um, orphan care. She did a great job of providing some great facts. I think we all can use a refresher at times on just facts about what what is international adoption and how did this get to where we are now and what is the decline about and what are some ways that we can be intervening to help families with uh, resettlement, to help families with reunification, to help provide children 
the best opportunity to grow up in a family or family-based care. And so her information and the way that she provided those tangible resources for people here in the States of, of just being honest and saying, listen, everyone is not called to be a foster parent or to grow their family through adoption, but there are some really tangible ways to get connected. And um, it's always a good reminder that anyone can help because all of us, um, those of us in Christ, we can pray. We can pray for children who are orphaned and vulnerable. We can pray for leaders. We can pray for people like Beth, executive directors. And it's always good to have those reminders, even though we may hear them a lot. It's good to be reminded. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and one of the things that really stuck out to me too, as you were talking about there, just reminded me of that there, a lot of the family preservation work they're doing around the world as well, you know, and they're going into countries and not just saying, oh, let's just put a bunch of kids into an institution. It's like, no, let's try to preserve their families to the extent we can't for whatever reason. Let's get people in that country, you know, to, to be able to help them through the church, to be able to help them. And, and that's something that, that I'm really uh, continually being encouraged by to see the different ways that people are creating family settings for children that might not otherwise ever be able to get a family under laws, under different cultures, just in different realities, you know? And that's something that we often speak from a theory kind of ivory tower, as I call it, theory land. Um, and and it's, it's so easy in theory land to do all these things, right? You know, every, every child has a right to a family. Of course they do. And of course we want them to. But in theory land, that works. Sometimes in reality, it doesn't. And you know, in a way that we want to see it. And so to see people getting creative with how to do that is always encouraging to me. Um, it might always, you know, we'd, we'd often sit back in our, you know, armchair quarterback and say, oh man, that's not the best way. I wish I could do it that way. You know, and I have conversations about that all the time. You know, sometimes, you know, now I'm never one to say we don't seek to go for the best and the ideal. Obviously, if you've listened to the show for any episodes, you know that that's not my uh, my default mode. My default mode is always let's go for the best and the ideal. But I also live in reality, as do all of us. And so there needs to be a, a balance of that and really to say, how can we do the best in the current reality for this child, these specific children that we have in front of us? What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm stuck on theory land, Phil. I think that you might need to <laughs> trademark that phrase. Maybe that's the next, next, next book that you'll be writing is theory land. Oh, you think yeah. so? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay, I will. It might be too depressing, though. I don't know if that would be a, you know, it might be too depressing to have a book called Theory Land and then not be able to live in it. <laughs> so, I don't think as many people would visit Theory Land as <laughs> Disneyland, but uh, that's uh, might be the most depressing place on earth when you realize it's not going to happen. So, anyway, on that note, unless you have something else to add, I think we go to Dr. Uh, Karen and Phil yeah, recommends. So what do you recommendations. think? All right. So today I get to do a couple of recommendations. Actually, I'm doing three today. And they're all under the same category of learning about and understanding others' perspectives. We talk about that a lot on the show. I actually had a recommendation a few weeks ago to to really seek out, you know, books and podcasts that uh, you know you will disagree with or you know will come from a totally different perspective from your own. And the, the couple of recommendations today are, are those for me. Um, actually, all three of them. And... Uh, the first two, one of them was recommended by Propaganda uh, several episodes ago, more than several, dec- uh, dozens of episodes ago. And I love that interview. If you haven't heard it, go back and, and listen to it. But uh, he recommended this book called Between the World and Me by ta Coates. And just a fantastic book written by a black man, uh, a letter to his son, his teenage son. And it was 
it was so incredibly moving. It was uh, enlightening to me and just to really understand his perspective, a perspective I will never have, um, but I can hopefully seek to understand. Um, another one was uh, I'm Still Here, but Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. Many other podcasts that I've listened to have recommended this book. I've heard her speaking on numerous occasions. And again, a perspective that I, I'm seeking to, to understand and to learn about it, to develop the empathy that I, uh, I know I need to develop and all of us need to develop our empathy, um, particularly um, in, uh, for different demographics that are completely different from ours and our experiences that, we've, that we have experienced. Um, and uh, I say ours as if I'm the same as everyone. I know people all around the world are listening to this. So whatever that other perspective is, you know, if you have that other seek to understand it in different ways. And if that means reading a book written by a white man in the middle of suburbia, then, then go read that. Um, and speaking of white man in suburbia, this is probably not suburbia, but uh, it's probably different, different, definitely a different area than uh, a lot of you live. It's a book written by Mike Myers. Yes, that Mike Myers from Wayne's World, from Saturday Night Live, um, from a lot of different funny things. So I Married an Axe Murder, some cult classics out there. But he wrote a book called Canada. Now, what really caused me to pick up this book, I'm, I'm not going to lie, it was because my daughter's going to college in Canada, so I wanted to learn about the country. And what better way to do that than a funny way? Actually, I listened to this book by Mike Myers. And uh, so he uses his Canadian accent the whole time. And it, it uh, I learned the Canadian accent a little bit too. So that was fun. Um, and, uh, you know, he really did a great job of giving a, a real perspective on Canada and the Canadian's mindset. And, um, and you know, why Canadians are often the most liked people on earth when they go on, uh, anytime you go on to Europe, you'll see Canadian flags on backpacks and there's a reason for it. Uh, one is they want to distinguish themselves from Americans. So that's clear. But the other is that Canadians are just really kind people for the most part. And he gives a lot of perspective on that. So anyway, those are three books, all three of which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and I'd say Canada was a lot funnier than the other two, but, uh, all of them were extremely enlightening and I, I do recommend them all. So thanks again, folks, for, uh, for downloading this. Thanks for sticking, sticking through it with us. And, uh, I know Karen and I both really appreciate every, each and every one of you who are downloading this and, uh, we're hoping that, uh, it's really helping you these conversations, both the interviews and the, our conversation with each other. It's encouraging you to think differently. It's encouraging you to, to encourage uh, others to think differently as well. And, and I do pray as I do every time I talk about this, I, I mean it, that I really pray that you take all that you're learning, all that you're hearing from, from Karen, from me, from, from the interviewees that we have on this show, from the guests that, uh, you take all of it to help you to understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. And for all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.